0: Section 4 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorstein Viblin. Chapter 3 Conspicuous Leisure. If its working were not disturbed, by other economic forces or other features of the emulative process, the immediate effect of such a pecuniary struggle as has just been described in outline would be to make men industrious and frugal. This result actually follows, in some measure, so far as regards the lower classes, whose ordinary means of acquiring goods is productive labor. This is more especially true of the laboring classes in a sedentary community which is at an agricultural stage of industry, in which there is a considerable subdivision of industry, and whose laws and customs secure to these classes a more or less definite share of the product of their industry. These lower classes can, in any case, not avoid labor, and the imputation of labor is therefore not greatly derogatory to them, at least not within their class. Rather, since labor is their recognized and accepted mode of life, they take some emulative pride in a reputation for efficiency in their work, this being often the only line of emulation that is open to them. For those for whom acquisition and emulation is possible only within the field of productive efficiency and thrift, the struggle for pecuniary reputability will, in some measure, work out in an increase of diligence and parsimony. But certain secondary features of the emulative process yet to be spoken of come in to very materially circumscribe and modify emulation in these directions among the pecuniary inferior classes, as well as among the superior class. But it is, otherwise, with the superior pecuniary class with which we are here immediately concerned. For this class also, the incentive to diligence and thrift is not absent, but its action is so greatly qualified by the secondary demands of pecuniary emulation that any inclination in this direction is practically overborne and any incentive to diligence tends to be of no effect the most imperative of these secondary demands of emulation as well as the one of widest scope is a requirement of abstention from productive work this is true in an especial degree for the barbarian stage of culture during the predatory culture labor comes to be associated in men's habits of thought with weakness and subjection to a master. It is therefore a mark of inferiority, and therefore comes to be accounted unworthy of men in his best estate. By virtue of this tradition, labor is felt to be debasing, and this tradition has never died out. On the contrary, with the advance of social differentiation, it has acquired the axiomatic force due to ancient and unquestioned prescription. In order to gain and to hold the esteem of men, it is not sufficient merely to possess wealth or power. The wealth or power must be put in evidence, for esteem is awarded only on evidence. And not only does the evidence of wealth serve to impress one's importance on others, and to keep their sense of his importance alive and alert, but it is of scarcely less use in building up and preserving one's self-complacency in all but the lowest stages of culture the normally constituted man is comforted and upheld in his self-respect by decent surroundings and by exemption from menial offices and forced departure from his habitual standard of decency either in the paraphernalia of life or in the kind and amount of his everyday activity is felt to be a slight upon his human dignity even apart from all conscious consideration of the approval or disapproval of his fellows. The archaic theoretical distinction between the base and the honorable in the manner of a man's life retains very much of its ancient force, even today. So much so that there are few of the better class who are not possessed of an instinctive repugnance for the vulgar forms of labor. We have a realizing sense of ceremonial uncleanness attaching in an especial degree to the occupations which are associated in our habits of thought with menial service. It is felt by all persons of refined taste that a spiritual contamination is inseparable from certain offices that are conventionally required of servants. Vulgar surroundings, mean, that is to say, inexpensive habitations, and vulgarly productive occupations are unhesitatingly condemned and avoided they are incompatible with life on a satisfactory spiritual plane with high thinking from the days of the greek philosophers to the present a degree of leisure and of exemption from contact with such industrial processes as serve the immediate everyday purposes of human life has ever been recognized by thoughtful men as a prerequisite to a worthy or beautiful or even a blameless human life in itself and in its consequences the life of leisure is beautiful and ennobling in all civilized men's eyes. This direct, subjective value of leisure and of other evidences of wealth is no doubt in great part secondary and derivative. It is in part a reflex of the utility of leisure as a means of gaining the respect of others, and in part it is the result of a mental substitution. The performance of labor has been accepted as a conventional evidence of inferior force. Therefore, it comes itself, by a mental shortcut, to be regarded as intrinsically base. During the predatory stage proper, and especially during the earlier stages of the quasi-peaceful development of industry that follows the predatory stage, a life of leisure is the readiest and most conclusive evidence of pecuniary strength, and therefore of superior force provided always that the gentleman of leisure can live in manifest ease and comfort. At this stage, wealth consists chiefly of slaves, and the benefits accruing from the possession of riches and power take the form chiefly of personal service and the immediate products of personal service. Conspicuous abstention from labor, therefore, becomes the conventional mark of superior pecuniary achievement and the conventional index of reputability, and conversely, since application to productive labor is a mark of poverty and subjection, it becomes inconsistent with a reputable standing in the community. Habits of industry and thrift, therefore, are not uniformly furthered by a prevailing pecuniary emulation. On the contrary, this kind of emulation indirectly discountenances participation in productive labor. Labor would unavoidably become dishonorable, as being an evidence indecorous under the ancient tradition handed down from an earlier cultural stage. The ancient tradition of the predatory culture is that productive effort is to be shunned as being unworthy of able-bodied men, and this tradition is reinforced rather than set aside in the passage from the predatory to the quasi-peaceful manner of life. Even if the institution of a leisure class had not come in with the first emergence of individual ownership by force of the dishonour attaching to productive employment, it would in any case have come in as one of the early consequences of ownership. And it is to be remarked that while the leisure class existed in theory from the beginning of predatory culture, the institution takes on a new and fuller meaning with the transition from the predatory to the next succeeding pecuniary stage of culture. It is from this time forth a leisure class, in fact, as well as in theory. From this point dates the institution of the leisure class in its consummate form. During the predatory stage proper, the distinction between the leisure and the laboring class is, in some degree, a ceremonial distinction only. The able-bodied men jealously stand aloof from whatever is in their apprehension menial drudgery, but their activity, in fact, contributes appreciably to the sustenance of the group. The subsequent stage of quasi-peaceful industry is usually characterized by an established chattel slavery, herds of cattle, and a servile class of herdsmen and shepherds. Industry has advanced so far that the community is no longer dependent, for its livelihood, on the chase or on any other form of activity that can fairly be classed as exploit. From this point on, the characteristic feature of leisure class life is a conspicuous exemption from all useful employment. The normal and characteristic occupations of the class in this mature phase of its life history are in form very much the same as in its earlier days. These occupations are government, war, sports, and devout observances. Persons unduly given to difficult theoretical niceties may hold that these occupations are still incidentally and indirectly productive. But it is to be noted as decisive of the question in hand that the ordinary and ostensible motive of the leisure class in engaging in these occupations is assuredly not an increase of wealth by productive effort. At this, as at any other cultural stage, government and war are, at least in part, carried on for the pecuniary gain of those who engage in them but it is gain obtained by the honourable method of seizure and conversion. These occupations are of the nature of predatory, not of productive employment. Something similar may be said of the chase, but with a difference. As the community passes out of the hunting stage proper, hunting gradually becomes differentiated into two distinct employments. On the one hand, it is a trade, carried on chiefly for gain, and from this the element of exploit is virtually absent, or it is at any rate not present in a sufficient degree to clear the pursuit of the imputation of gainful industry. On the other hand, the chase is also a sport, an exercise of the predatory impulse simply. As such, it does not afford any appreciable pecuniary incentive, but it contains a more or less obvious element of exploit, it is this latter development of the chase, purged of all imputation of handicraft, that alone is meritorious, and fairly belongs in the scheme of life of the developed leisure class. Abstention from labor is not only a honorific or meritorious act, but it presently comes to be a requisite of decency. The insistence on property as the basis of reputability is very naive and very imperious during the early stages of the accumulation of wealth abstention from labor is the convenient evidence of wealth and is therefore the conventional mark of social standing and this insistence on the meritoriousness of wealth leads to a more strenuous insistence on leisure nota notai est notarei psius. according to well-established laws of human nature prescription presently seizes upon this conventional evidence of wealth and fixes it in men's habits of thought as something that is in itself Substantially meritorious and ennobling, while productive labor, at the same time and by a like process, becomes, in a double sense, intrinsically unworthy. Prescription ends by making labor not only disreputable in the eyes of the community, but morally impossible to the noble, free-born man, and incompatible with a worthy life. This taboo on labor has a further consequence in the industrial differentiation of classes. As the population increases in density and the predatory group grows into a settled industrial community, the constituted authorities and the customs governing ownership gain in scope and consistency. It then presently becomes impracticable to accumulate wealth by simple seizure, and, in logical consistency, acquisition by industry is equally impossible for high-minded and impecunious men. The alternative open to them is beggary or privation. Wherever the canon of conspicuous leisure has a chance undisturbed to work out its tendency, there will therefore emerge a secondary and in a sense spurious leisure class, abjectly poor and living in a precarious life of want and discomfort, but morally unable to stoop to gainful pursuits. The decayed gentleman and the lady who has seen better days, are by no means unfamiliar phenomena even now this pervading sense of the indignity of the slightest manual labor is familiar to all civilized peoples as well as to peoples of a less advanced pecuniary culture in persons of a delicate sensibility who have long been habituated to gentle manners the sense of the shamefulness of manual labor may become so strong that at a critical juncture it will even set aside the instinct of self-preservation. So, for instance, we are told of certain Polynesian chiefs, who, under the stress of good form, preferred to starve rather than carry their food to their mouths with their own hands. It is true, this conduct may have been due, at least in part, to an excessive sanctity or taboo attaching to the chief's person. The taboo would have been communicated by the contact of his hands, and so would have made anything touched by him unfit for human food but the taboo itself is a derivative of the unworthiness or moral incompatibility of labour so that even when construed in this sense the conduct of the polynesian chiefs is truer to the canon of honorific leisure than would at first appear a better illustration or at least a more unmistakable one is afforded by a certain king of France. Who is said to have lost his life through an excess of moral stamina in the observance of good form. In the absence of the functionary whose office it was to shift his master's seat, the king sat uncomplaining before the fire and suffered his royal person to be toasted beyond recovery. But in so doing, he saved his most Christian majesty from menial contamination. Sumum crede nefas animam praeferre pudori it we perdere causas it has already been remarked that the term leisure as here used does not connote indolence or quiescence what it connotes is non-productive consumption of time time is consumed non-productively from a sense of the unworthiness of productive work and as an evidence of pecuniary ability to afford a life of idleness but the whole of the life of the gentleman of leisure is not spent before the eyes of the spectators who are to be impressed with that spectacle of honorific leisure which in the ideal scheme makes up his life for some part of the time his life is perforce withdrawn from the public eye and of this portion which is spent in private the gentleman of leisure should for the sake of his good name be able to give a convincing account he should find some means of putting in evidence the leisure that is not spent in the sight of the spectators. This can be done only indirectly, through the exhibition of some tangible, lasting results of the leisure so spent, in a manner analogous to the familiar exhibition of tangible, lasting products of the labour performed for the gentleman of leisure by handicraftsmen and servants in his employ. The lasting evidence of productive labour is its material product, commonly some article of consumption. In the case of exploit, it is similarly possible and usual to procure some tangible result that may serve for exhibition in the way of trophy or booty. At a later phase of the development, it is customary to assume some badge of insignia of honor that will serve as a conventionally accepted mark of exploit, and which, at the same time, indicates the quantity or degree of exploit of which it is the symbol, as the population increases in density, and as human relations grow more complex and numerous, all the details of life undergo a process of elaboration and selection, and in this process of elaboration the use of trophies develops into a system of rank, titles, degrees, and insignia, typical examples of which are heraldic devices, medals, and honorary decorations. End of first part of chapter 3